I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So I'm really excited to introduce our next speaker who is going to be talking about talking about medicines and plants and the ailments of Henry VIII. And this is something that is so interesting to me because we all kind of have this stereotype of Henry being so hypochondriacal. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of hear about the medicinal side of history, right? It's something that we don't really hear as much about. So let me introduce you to Seamus Akali. He has always been interested in the Tudor dynasty and also the many uses of plants. See how it merges together. He grew up learning about plants from his grandmother, Anne Kelly, and mother, Diane Prickett. Their love of plants has manifested in Seamus through his love of being out in the wild, looking for medicinal plants, through his spending lots of time in the family garden and spending time in the woods in the Pacific Northwest. He is most often seen with his head down, looking at the plants along the path and not at what lies ahead. So I'm so excited to introduce you to Seamus, and we're going to jump right into the questions with me asking him about how he got interested in plants in the first place. You know, always been interested in genealogy, and specifically the Tudor dynasty. Um, you know, so it's so filled with uh, so much awesomeness. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Elizabeth was fantastic. Uh, Henry VIII was great until he started killing people. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I mean, he, he did really awesome things. He wrote music, he was, in, you know, in medicine, and he did all these awesome things. He just went a little off the deep end. Um, so, you know, just that whole time period is really interesting. Uh, the clothing is fantastic. Um, I actually almost feel more comfortable in it than I do in regular clothes. Um, and so, you know, I just, it's just a really cool time period. Um, my grandmother, the, the second reason, my grandmother was an avid gardener. Uh, mm -hmm. She went to school for botany for a little while before she married my grandpa and, you know, got derailed with kids and family and things. Um, but, uh, you know, she, I grew up surrounded by her garden mm -hmm. and all of her plants and her books on botany and, um, you know, things like that, which actually some of the books behind me are actually from her library. Mm -hmm. um, and then my mom was an avid gardener as well. So, um, you know, it was just really kind of bred into me growing up and, you know, and I'm really, I, I do a little bit different than they did, obviously, you know, they're gardeners. I really actually kind of enjoy more like walking through the woods and, and finding plants on the side of the path that, you know, used 500 years ago to treat dog bites or, you mm -hmm. know, human bites or, you know, anything. Um, and so, you know, these things that you see, um, in you know abandoned uh 
lots and on the side of the path, these are actually medicinal plants from, you know, 600 years ago. And I've always thought that was kind of interesting. And then thirdly, um, I'm in a pre-1600s recreation group. So, you know, I get to uh, you know, live as well as I can. You know, we don't have the plague, thank goodness. You know, we have flushing toilets. Um, <laughs> you know, we, but I get to, you know, research and, and have a reason to look for and, you know, display apothecary and other uh, medieval and Renaissance medicinal items so i get to you know play with all kinds of fun things so and three reasons i got into it. that's the sca that you're in right the i am yeah okay. yeah and yeah. what's, and, and what's really cool. what, what's, I'm sorry what's the name of your character or do you have a so, uh actually seamus is my oh. my sca name yeah okay. so okay. i actually published the book under my sca name um when talking with Made Global, we kind of had a, a discussion about, you know, whether I should publish under my, you know, birth name or the name I use in the SCA. And, you know, more people know me in the SCA for what I do. And so we published it under Seamus. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. That's great. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, imagine that, and uh, live in about the time of Henry's reign. Um, when he was married to uh, Jane Seymour and Blend, that kind of era. Okay, cool. Okay. That's really cool. Um, so, can you tell me why? I'm just going to jump right into my questions here then. Okay. Um, yeah, can you tell me, like, kind of why you chose to study? I know you said you're interested in the plants. Like, what about Henry VIII and his ailments? Um, so, Henry VIII had a lot of ailments. Um, and he, he was very involved in, in the medical time, you know, I mean, of the medical era at the time. I mean, he, he was involved with, um, he started the Royal, uh, College of Physicians. Um, he, he, uh, mixed the barber surgeon and the fellowship of surgeons into one, you know, one big group uh you can see that in his that painting by uh, hans holbein you know whether it's got the you know the he's handing the charter to you know one of the physicians um he was uh an amateur apothecary he you know he did all these things in the medical field uh you know he's even had his own still and you know kind of dabbled in it um and one of the sources i use actually is thought to have had about half of them uh, directly uh, touched by him. So, you know, he was involved in the recreation of them or, you know, things like that. So, you know, he was really actually very involved in, in medical stuff of the time period, as well as, you know, having all these ailments that he, you know, likely had these treatments used on him. So, yeah. So, that's, he's, you know. <laughs> Can you, can you give me sort of the the survey of what was available for doctors and for physicians and almost like the the difference of, of course their midwives and doctors and just kind of the the lay of the land of what the resources were and like if the average person got sick what they would do versus the king and that's kind of, that's like a huge a huge question right there all right so um so in the 1400s the printing press was invented mm -hmm. and so um 
a lot of the medical texts from previous eras were found and, and republished. Well, not republished because they weren't published before, but you know, were taken and, and made more hand or more available to uh, learned people. So, you know, for example, the De Materia Medica, uh, which was written in the first century, was published in 1478. Uh, the Herbal of Apuleius was written in the fourth century. It was also published in the 1400s. Uh, Hildegard's uh, Herbal, which was written in the 12th century, was also published in the 1400s. So there's all these books from the first century going forward that were then being put out on the market. Mm. Um, and, you know, and a lot of them were, were being written or uh, being published in Latin. So it really would have been only available to people who could read Latin. Um, but you know, these, these medical texts, which were only available if you had access to one that had been transcribed by hand by a scribe somewhere, you know, um, were then available to your average doctor. I mean, you know, they weren't really average, but you know, I mean, they were, they had access to these then. Mm -hmm. um, some of the other tools they used, um, so like humoral theory was one of the uh, diagnostic tools that they used. And the idea of it um, was originally from ancient Egypt, um, but it really came into effect in the 400s. And the idea is that our bodies are made up of four different types of humors. Your blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and, and black bile. And when your body gets out of whack, the balances get off, you get sick. And each person is different. You know, each person has a different balance. Um, and the idea was that you could tell by someone's personality, you know, if they were hot-blooded, then they had a lot of blood naturally. And so the idea was that if that got out of balance, then you would use treatments to put that back into balance. And so, um, you could use food, activities, different types of air, um, you know, and then herbs to bring that back into balance. Um, or if you didn't follow the doctor's directions, if you go farther out of balance, you can get, you know, sicker. Um, also another item that we used was the Zodiac Man, which uh, was originally from the Hellenistic era, which is 400 BC to first century BC. And the idea is that different parts of your body are controlled or ruled over by different zodiacs. Mm. So Aries controls your head, um, Capricorn controls your knees. Mm. But the zodiacs also control uh, different herbs, uh, they control different diseases. So the doctor would have to figure out how the stars were aligned, you know, where the stars were in which zodiac, can figure out what plant they needed to use against whatever zodiac was ruling that disease mm -hmm. in whatever part of the body. And it was very complicated. And they actually carried little almanacs with them that had the stars in, you know, the star charts. So they could figure that out when they're out on like a house call. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was one of the other diagnostic uh, items that they used. The doctrine of signatures was also another thing they used to determine what to treat. Um, the ailments and it was a little bit more intuitive um the idea was originally from the first century it really became like developed and systematic in the 1500s but clear through from the first century to the tudor period it was really used um it was involved in uh medicine with galen and uh diacordes and the idea is that the plants tell you what they should be used for. 
And, you know, if you were religious, then the idea was that God was telling you by how he made these plants, you know, what they should do. So eyebright, which is in the broom rape family, looks like little eyeballs. And so you would use it for, for eye ailments. Liverwort is shaped like a liver, so then therefore you use it for liver ailments. And finally, my favorite diagnostic thing is uroscopy, um, which is the study of urine, which, you know, is kind of weird. But um, so you would look at the urine and see if anything was floating in it. Was it a weird color? Did it smell weird? Did it taste weird? Um, and you would use that to determine what ailment your patient had and how you should treat it. Um, for example, um, in the Physicians of Medify, uh, it's written if you have bluish or white urine, um, the person has a fever and is in great danger of dying. Or uh, if the urine is blue, then they have an infection in their internal organs. So based on how your, you know, your urine looked would help determine what they need to do to fix you. Right. So these are all the different diagnostic tools that a physician of the time would have used. Um, you know, uroscopy, the Zodiac Man, those are all really more for the learned um, doctors, whereas, you know, humoral theory and the doctrine of signatures kind of probably would have been used by anyone who had any sort of medical things or like, you know, herbal use at home. You know, you, you could use the intuitive idea of the doctrine of signatures to try and figure out what you needed to use. Yeah. It's interesting you, no, <laughs> well, kind of, but it's interesting because, you know, we think about some of these things as being um, so far-fetched or, you know, so primitive, but the idea of looking at urine is something doctors do today still. Right. Oh, yeah. It, it's not that, you know, crazy to think, I mean, like tasting it, that's like kind of going a bit far. But <laughs> you, can, you can use it to determine if you have diabetes right. because there's sugar in your urine. So, I mean, it actually really does make sense. Yeah, no, it, it really, it really does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting because I've done a lot of learning or studying about um, pregnancy and childbirth because that's something I'm, I'm really interested in. And, you know, some of the mm -hmm. different things about the, the churching ceremony, which is religious in nature, but they still do right. that now. You know, you go to your six-week appointment and then you're given the all clear or, you know, whatever. And right. some of these things are, might be rooted in religion or in some kind of, uh, you know, a belief system of some sort. And yet it right. has practical, like, you know, it's not that far-fetched. I think it's kind of interesting. So anyway. Um, so, yeah, actually I did, a, I did a project where I took Hildegard von Briggen's um, treatments and I ran them through uh, modern medical uh, texts and found that about 18% of them actually have the active ingredient in them that you know might not have been in the, the same level that she had but th there was scientific backing for that actually being used to treat you know the ailment yeah. that she was treating it for. So they're you know they were a little less reliable uh, at the time than they are now but there still is quite a bit more than you would think that actually crosses over and and would could be yeah. used modernly yeah yeah i think that's interesting um okay so tell me what happens if somebody gets sick so i'm just a i'm just a person i'm like a, a okay i'm i'm a farmer person and and i get and i start to feel sick like what are my options uh so I mean, the average person really didn't have a whole lot of options. There, oh. 
you know, if you happen to be sick, when a barber surgeon happened to be, you know, traveling through, you know, really you had, you know, the, the midwives, the, you know, the, the herb people that lived in your village, you know, and, and you, people, you know, people knew what the humors were. And so their ideas would be, you know, okay, I think that, you know, this humor is out of balance and they would give you, you know, the herbs to try and rebalance it, but they really didn't have the knowledge that a, a physician would have. Mm -hmm. And most people didn't have access to that physician. You know, that was really for the royalty and the people that, you know, the wealthy to do people that lived in, you know, the metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you were just a regular farmer out in the middle of nowhere, you really didn't have a lot of options. Uh, mostly you would probably have been treated with whatever your family had in the past treated that person with you know, the, the herbs that they picked out of their garden and, you know, the culinary herbs. Culinary herbs have a lot of medicinal uses in period. Um, and so, you know, these are the herbs that you would have access to as well as the wild ones that you found in the woods or, you know, in the meadows. Okay. All right. So then I'm the queen and I get sick. Okay. So if you're the queen, um, you have multiple physicians that will then run diagnostic tests, you know, yeah. uh, trying to determine if, you know, what, what, what is out of balance and, you know, check your urine and do all these things. And they would put together, you know, various treatments. And so using the humoral theory, doctrine of signatures, you know, uroscopy, they would determine what is wrong with you. And then uh, they could put together very complicated treatments. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the ones in the Tudor texts written by Henry's physicians, you know, contain 12 or 14 different ingredients. You know, it's a lot different than a simple, uh, you know, rosemary and wine, you know, treatment that an average person could have used. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was just a lot more complicated, um, mm -hmm. but they had a lot more, edu a lot more education. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Wasn't there the, this is totally off topic, wasn't there the um, medical school in Salerno? And do you, what do you yeah. know about that? I just so actually. I don't know a whole lot. Um, Italy and you know, a lot of my, my focus is on Western Europe, uh, yeah. but I want to move over and do some more studying that other in other areas. Um, there's a there's actually a a text um, all about women's um, treatments and, and women's ailments. Um, and since you're interested in that kind of thing, if you don't have it. Um, yeah. I lent mine out, but I will I get the information know. to you. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, there are. Um, that was, you know, was that Galen? Galen wrote something big on uh, the, uh, Tortula is the name of the. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's all about women's, yeah. women's ailments and women's, yeah. women's illnesses and their treatments. It's really That's very interesting. Great drawings in it, too. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually came from, I believe, that school. So, okay. you know, I mean, they had. Um, in Italy, you know, they had these big schools slash medical places and had a lot more, you know, the, the Renaissance hit Italy a lot sooner than it did. And they allowed, they allowed women to study there, didn't they? In yeah. yeah. Tell me that. That gets us into this discussion about like midwives versus physician. What, if a woman was interested in healing, she would become a midwife then. She couldn't become a physician right. in English. Right. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, not, and not even everyone um who like so William Bolin, which is one of Henry's medical staff, you know, he was a man, but he uh he wanted to become a, a 
doctor and he didn't he was a, he was called a nurse surgeon because he didn't finish everything and we don't know what happened mm -hmm. but he was called a nurse surgeon instead of a regular surgeon and yeah. to kind of you know there was lots of different levels within you know the medical world you know you had your actual medical doctors and your surgeons but there were other things like midwives and and nurse surgeons um, but yeah a woman would not have you know been allowed to to study to the extent that a man would have sure Sure. Okay, so um, you, in your introduction to your book, you talk about searching for Henry's physician's diary. Can you tell me a little yes. bit about search? So, so originally, um, so uh, I heard of it as you know Dr. Butts' diary, mm -hmm. and Dr. Butts is one of the physicians that is on Henry's right in the Holbein painting mm -hmm. of the barber surgeons. Um, he's in between uh, Thomas. Um, Oh no, John Chambers and uh, Thomas Olsop, which was Henry's uh, royal apothecary. So the three of them are on one side and Dr. Butts is in the center. Um, and he was the doctor to um, Anne Boleyn, George Boleyn, the Duke of Norfolk, Norfolk uh, the Henry's son, uh, Henry Fitzroy. Uh, and he was um, one of the three authors that actually wrote this handwritten prescription book. Mm. And it was never published. Uh, it's, there's only one available. Uh, it's actually in the British uh, Library. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me about a year and a half to find it, <laughs> of, of searching through all kinds of things. So it's also called uh, the Prescription Book of Henry VIII, or the Henry's Little Prescription Book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because it was a handwritten one, it wasn't published, it wasn't like it had a title. Mm -hmm. So um, there's all these different names for it. It's also Sloan Manuscript. Uh, 1047 um, and it contains 200 or so written prescriptions um, no extra text really just this is what it is used for and this is how you make it um, so for someone who studies apothecary you know it was really like that's what I wanted to find um, so after I found it I learned you know that it wasn't just Dr. Butts that that wrote it um, it was also uh, Walter Cromer uh, John Chambers and Agostino Gastini, who was uh, not only Henry's physician, but also um, Wolsey's physician. So um, what's really cool about it is it's believed that Henry was involved in about 100 of the prescriptions that are in it. Yes. So, you know, it's, it really points to the, the fact that Henry was involved in medical stuff, you know, and he was really interested in it. And so, you know, this treatment is the most of the treatments that I cover in my book, you know, these are the ones that are most likely were used on Henry, you know, and these are the ones that Henry actually might have had, you know, actual hands on with it and helped make it before he was, you know, treated with it. So it just was really fascinating, um, fascinating uh, text and a little hard to read. It's all handwritten, you know, in, in Tudor, in Tudor handwriting and with abbreviations. Um, but it's just one of the most fascinating ones and um i really hope to in the future you know delve deeper into it and and i want to do all of the things in it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's a really cool text cool and so um it, that kind of leads me to the next question about henry being involved in so much tell me a little bit about you know, we saw that he, he it made sense for him to be hypochondriacal um to right. tell a little bit about that and about his 
the, the stereotype we have of him of being so hypochondriacal and, um, and, you know, every time the sweat hit, he moved castles and only sent his second best doctor to Anne and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what, what can you tell me about his history so, and, and his hypochondria? Okay, yeah, so his, his father died of consumption. Um, and then his brother, Arthur, was likely uh, died of uh, sweating sickness about seven years um, before that. And, um, you know, we, we don't know for sure what Arthur died of. Uh, it was a, a bad vapor that rose and, and killed him, but it's likely sweating sickness, which we don't really, you know, know for sure what it is anymore because we don't have that anymore. You know, it's a very interesting thing. Um, he also contracted malaria, which was called Churchian fevers, mm -hmm. um, or at least the type he had, um, and smallpox. So very early in his life, he watched his father, his brother die, and he got two very you know, severe ailments. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really sent him, and he really became very hypochondriac. Yes. Mm -hmm. Hypochondriacal? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he became a hypochondriac yeah. and obsessed with medicine and ailments and illness. And so, yeah, he did move. You know, if someone was sick, he would move. Uh, you were not allowed to come to court if you were ill. You know, I mean, he was, you know, he was very strict on that. Um, and so through that, you know, he was really involved in the medical mm -hmm. stuff, which, you know, we've already talked about. He founded the Royal, you know, College of Physicians. You know, he, you know, united the barber surgeons and the regular surgeons in 1540, which we have that painting from. Mm -hmm. um, he had, you know, he was an amateur apothecary, he had his own apothecary cabinet, he had his own still. You know, he was just very involved with it. Um, and I really think that involvement, um, is the reason so many of his physicians had medical texts published and you know published and were the first of their kind uh you know thomas's um book certain works of chirogeny is the first uh english published book on surgery you know mm -hmm. it contains gunshot wounds uh treatments which you know gunshot was very very new at this point especially mm -hmm. in england um william bullen is the first uh, English person to write about the sweating sickness. You know, all of his staff were like, you know, did all these things. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of it is due to Henry's obsession with medicine and ailments and trying to treat them. And yet he let himself get so out of shape. And yeah. how do you square, like how do you personally understand that? Have you ever thought well, about that? Or, you know, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think, so it, it, he was pretty in shape, you know, very early. I mean, he was praised for how, you know, athletic he was and, you know, and, and beautiful and fantastic. Um, but later in life, he really let himself go, you know, and, and a lot of that, I think, is due to his mental state. You know, I mean, he had a lot of pressure. Obviously, he was king of a country, um, but he didn't have an error. He didn't, you know, there's all these things. And I know that, you know, before we had my son, I was asked daily. So when you're having kids, right. I can't imagine if I was trying to get an heir for a kingdom, you know, the pressure would be outstanding. Um, and so all these things, plus his, his jousting accident where he was left unconscious. And, you know, by that point, he was kind of starting to put on weight. He was in his later 30s. You know, I think he just, 
he crumbled under the pressure. And I think, you know, he, he let himself eat too much and he, you know, became, he was very, you know, yeah. into eating and, and, you know, the, the physical pleasures where he was less so earlier. I mean, he was very into, you know, pleasure and, you know, playing. <laughs> he, he wasn't very good at the beginning of, um, in, as, as far as governing a, a country, but, you know, he really, he became less spiritual and more physical later in his, in his life. And I think that really, you know, he became less focused on those things and, and kind of just let go, you know, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with his, his mental state. And you can see that change through his reign. Sure. So can you talk to me a little bit? I'm totally going out of the order of my my questions here. Um, well, not so we, the speed of the injury. So that takes me, if you can talk to me a little bit about, we know we had that jousting accident and I'm so interested in that jousting accident because there's so many different reports. Like you talked about that he was left unconscious and yet like some sources don't say that. And like that, whole, there's all this mystery around this, right. this jousting accident. Um, so what, from your study, from what you found, tell me a little bit about some of his main injuries. And then if you can kind of touch on the 1536 one. Okay, yeah, so he actually, so he had two jousting accidents. Um, and I've seen them confused um, mm -hmm. in some, you know, talks about, um, you know, his first jousting accident, he just forgot to put his visor down. And he got, you know, hit, nicked in the brow. No real, uh, you know, serious injury. Um, you know, probably knocked him about about a bit. But, um, you know, he, he wasn't left unconscious with that one. And I don't even think he was, you know, removed from his horse. So, you know, the you hear a lot about his jousting accident. And I've seen that one referenced as the jousting accident that changed Henry, which that was not the one where he was left unconscious. You know, that was the first jousting accident. Um, he also uh, wrenched his ankle pretty bad playing tennis. Um, and I believe that there's a couple times where he did that. Um, but you can see um, when you look back at the letters, there, there's talk of um, you know, him sitting out from dancing and being very grumpy about it. Um, and the thought is that you can see a shift in the shoe wear of the time period to slippers because he had a, a hurt ankle. And so he, instead of wearing the regular shoes, he was wearing slippers and then that became very fashionable. And, you know, they kind of followed the king and wearing black velvet slippers, which was likely due to a wrenched ankle. Um, he also almost drowned, you know, trying to pole vault over a, over a creek or uh, pond, um, which I didn't include in my book because I didn't really find any treatments for uh, you know, almost drowning. almost drowning, right? You know, so I didn't really think that was one that probably have been treated, uh, but it was one of the accidents he had, and um, and then there was his, you know, his his big jousting accident, um, and I think a lot of the confusion comes from I he probably was quickly brought into a tent, and you know, just his medical staff was inside, so mm -hmm. you know, we don't have records of what they did. Um, and so you're looking at, you know, people who were on the outside and, you know, just see him rushed into a tent to be tended to. So it was, you know, was he left unconscious for two hours? Yeah, I guess we probably don't know for sure. Um, but more of the sources say that he was unconscious than, than not, I think. So um, I think it was probably likely he was unconscious for a while. Um, and that, you know, that is 
one of the things that people really say that's what changed Henry, you know, this head injury. I think it was a combination of things, you know, I, it definitely didn't help. Um, but there are a lot of other things that could lead to a personality change in a person. Um, and um, for instance, one of the treatments that I cover in my book on for swollen legs is contains three different types of lead. Oh, wow. And so you have this person who has ulcers on their leg and you're smearing a plaster of lead onto them, you know, and, and the, the, the uh, poisoning, lead poisoning, mood changes, abnormal sperm, uh, joint pain, you know, all these things are symptoms of lead poisoning. You're actually rubbing it into someone's leg and, and opens open wounds. Yeah. You know, you know, that's one of the things that isn't really looked at. And mm. on top of, you know, later he, you know, the, the, the wound that he got from when in that second joust, when the horse fell on him and he, you know, hurt his leg, it never healed. And he got that fistula and the constant pain from that, you know, you see, I, so I work in a pharmacy uh, in, in real life. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you see people who are in chronic pain all the time. And you can tell a difference when they've been treated and they're getting better and their, their mood. I mean, their mood is completely different and they're a completely different person. So I really, you know, that's really another thing that I think is overlooked is the chronic pain that Henry was in. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that joust not only affected him possibly mentally, but affected him through the chronic pain affecting his personality. Sure. Okay. And yeah, can you tell me about like, well, his legs, we kind of talked about the, the sources and, and just kind of what you were able to find and what you were able to use as you put together your book. And, and okay. And, yeah. so, so I used three types of sources. So I used um, the letters and uh, first-hand accounts to kind of, you know, set the stage of, you know, what was being said about Henry uh, at the time. And then I used uh, medical texts written by Henry's physicians. And then some modern medical sources to kind of tie it together and like, for example, the Center for Disease Control to kind of give a, give us an idea of what the diseases were. So for the letters and papers database, it was a good portion of the, the sources I used for firsthand accounts. There were some other ones, um, Woolsey's um, Gentleman Usher, that's what he was. He was a gentleman usher, wrote an account um, and so that was included, but most of them were the letters and papers um, database, which is fantastic. Um, it it was really interesting because you know these are words written by people who have actually interacted with Henry, you know, mm -hmm. or words of Henry himself. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really really interesting, as well as um, like I you know I said my grandmother was really into genealogy when she passed away a couple of years ago I got 13 boxes of genealogy things uh -huh. um, yeah and mm -hmm. included in it was a diary written by my great great grandma of the, of the entire first year of my great grandma's life mm -hmm. when she started wearing stockings what she mm -hmm. ate who came to visit and it was just so interesting to really get this window into you know that time period and reading the letters and papers database is exactly like that. I mean, a lot of the things are, you know, 
I went to visit this person or, you know, this person is not going to be able to, you know, visit you because their ulcers or their gout is, you know, acting up. And it's, you know, a lot of it is just really everyday things, which is super interesting. And I have to say it was a little like I was doing something bad by reading someone else's mail. Um, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, these are, these are personal letters that someone wrote to someone else and here I am reading through them. Um, so those were majority of the, the sources I used for, um, you know, kind of figuring out what was going on around Henry. The second type of sources were the medical texts. So it includes three different texts, um, Dr. Butt's diary or Henry's, pres you know, prescription book, which we already talked about, um, which was written by four of his physicians. Um, then uh, Thomas Gale's book, uh, Certain Works of Chirogeny, and then Thomas Bolin's uh, Bulwark of Defense, uh, which is actually consists of four different books within it, a book on simples, um, and then a conversation between him and, and uh, another medical person. Um, but, you know, and his book contains the first, you know, uh, per, uh, published uh, treatments for sweating sickness. Um, you know, he was his nurse surgeon. Um, and so all, you know, three of these texts were actually written by people who treated Henry. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't have the medical records uh, for Henry. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people believe that's for their, save themselves. You know, mm -hmm. if something went wrong, you know, it could be used against them if they killed the king. Yeah. So, you know, it's very common in history for those, the medical staff of, of kings and queens to not include what they did to treat them. But by looking at the texts that we have written by Henry's physicians, these are what they recommended for these treatments. And this is what Henry had, yeah. you know, and you can kind of, you know, put it together. And then finally, I use sources like the CDC um, to kind of give an, an idea of, you know, what the, tr what the ailments were. Malaria is not an issue in, in England like it was at, during the Tudor period. Uh, it's not an issue at all in the States. You know, you hear, oh, I need to, you know, get this medication so I don't get malaria when I go, you know, to Africa or whatever. But you don't really understand what it is. Uh, same with smallpox. Smallpox is extinct. You know, we've eradicated it. So a lot of people don't have that really idea of what smallpox was. And so I wanted to use those modern sources to kind of give us an idea of what it is exactly that they were dealing with, as well as some modern sources that kind of gave us an idea of what the treatment ingredients were for. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in some cases, you know, I, I talked about, you know, like the lead and, and what the, the symptoms for lead poisoning was to show that you know, some of these treatments actually could have done more harm than they did good. And so, those modern sources kind of tied it together, I think, and really made it into a beginning to end. You know, what was said about him, you know, what was actually done in the Tudor period, and then what we know modernly looking back at those treatments. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, your book is, your book is great. Um, nice. And it's really, it's, a, it's really easy to read your book, too, because I'm, I'm not a... I'm not Good, a I'm glad. Or, yeah, no, it was great. Right, uh, and so it actually was really kind of, I, it took a lot of, of editing um, and me going back and going, okay, <laughs> would I have known this if I didn't study this? No, I probably, okay, I should explain that. And a lot of, you know, because I just start talking and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. The average person doesn't know that. So I, I, I'm glad that, that it was easy to read no, and for you know, someone who doesn't know about that time period and 
medical treatments in that time period. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I just, the main thing I, we kind of just touched on while we talked about his legs, it, it, what do you think, were his, the legs his, his predominant, was that like the main issue that bothered him in the end of his life, were his legs? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the main things. So he was very proud of his legs. Um, and it was talked about in court. I mean, he wore really tight garters that, um, you know, are likely what caused his swelling and his varicose veins and, you know, which started his ulcers. Um, and so um, not only did he have those issues earlier, as he got older, they got worse and he got ulcers on both legs. Mm -hmm. And then he then had that injury, which caused the fistula that never healed. And you know, there's talk of you can, you know, you could smell the king coming, you know, I mean, just a rotting wound on your leg that never heals, you know, and so it was a big part of his health issues with her leg, his legs. The thing he was most proud of later in life was the thing that held him back and, you know, really, really hurt him and caused him the most pain. How would so, you yeah, treat that today? How would you treat an ulcer like his on his leg? What would you do? Well, so antibiotics. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. all right. So <laughs> you know, I mean that. Yeah. You know that, that was the the big thing is I mean what they they would do they would they would keep reopening it and mm -hmm. it was very common in that time period to use like a hot iron to reopen the wound and let it drain, which is good and fine, and we would do that now uh, without a hot iron, um, yeah. but you know with a you know a, a tubing and you know gauze and letting the the infection drain out but we, we you know we would have used we'd use antibiotics as well you know and that's something that you know they didn't have obviously um so i mean they did the best they could at the time you know what they had you know they were draining it and you know and he would get better when it was drained because it would seal off and you know the infection would flare up again and you know and so you yeah. know they did the best they had with what they had he just you know, never antibiotics that Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it was with him until he died. Hmm. You know, just a real chronic. Hmm. I, I can't so, imagine having it, an affected yeah. wound for that long. Yeah, that would be horrible. So none of these yeah. herbs that we talk about, do any of them have any kind of antibiotic properties or... Not to uh, so, the extent that he would have needed them. I didn't see any that were used in his, by his, I mean, we know that there are some that have, you know, antibiotic uh, properties, but I, you know, none that stuck out that this was, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, one of the treatments that I, I covered was a wound flush, you know, and it really, not a lot of the stuff in it really has much to, to actually help. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're really kind of just flushing dirty plant water <laughs> through a wound you know so uh, all right well that's that's a great topic um so <laughs> on, on that note um can you tell me a, a little bit about your your book because we're touching on it but and like where can people learn more about you and and where can they buy your book and tell us about about that so my book yeah plug yourself this one right here <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah right See, that's um, so uh my book is available on amazon uh it's available in kindle and paperback um 
I have a Facebook uh, author page. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to keep up on all the other things I do, uh, mm -hmm. I try and post periodically about random treatments that I come across, mm -hmm. really interesting, mm -hmm. weird things. Um, it's under uh, Seamus O'Kelly. So uh, if you if you Amazon search pustules, I'm the first <laughs> thing that comes up. <laughs> right? I know. Uh, you made so, it. Uh, you made it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just like, oh, I don't even care anymore. No. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, it's, you can also, uh, Made Global, which is the publisher, uh, has a little blurb about me and you can click on my book from there and it'll take you directly to my Amazon page that has the book there. So, uh, currently those are where it's available, uh, just through Amazon. Okay, great. No, and it's a, yeah. I can say I, I really enjoy it. It's a, it's a fast read. You can just kind of. Yeah. It has, it has pictures. It's illustrated. Well, it's not right. photographs. You get yeah. pictures. Uh, so uh, Vocalized Photography uh, worked with me. They did a fantastic job. Um, they're a local photographer here on the, on the Oregon coast. Um, and basically what I did was I, I took all of my ingredients in a big pile and threw it on the table mm -hmm. and was like, take a picture with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they really worked with me, um, you know, taking tons and tons of photos uh, with my stuff to try and make it visually pleasing. Because uh, so often science and, uh, you know, specifically apothecary, when you're recreating that time period are overlooked. You know, people look at the stained glass windows, they look at the paintings, the clothing, you know, these, these visual things. Mm -hmm. And apothecary is more often than not a dusty old book, you know, and it's not as visually pleasing. And so what I wanted to do was make the science and this medical thing visually pleasing for people. So even if it's not necessarily your favorite topic, uh, it's still really interesting and, and, and visually stimulating for the eyes. So yeah, yeah it, was, no, it was fun. Yeah. Great. So cool. Um, is there anything you want to add that I didn't ask you about? Um, I, you don't have to. I just want to make sure. Smallpox. We didn't talk about smallpox. Oh, smallpox. How can we forget about smallpox? smallpox. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about smallpox. <laughs> so, uh, four of the four of the treatments that are in my book are actually for smallpox. Um, and one of the interesting things I found about smallpox, obviously, is, you know, we, we don't have to worry about smallpox now. It's been eradicated. But if you look at the survival rate, it was a 30% of people passed away with smallpox mm -hmm. on average. So, you know, you look at your family, and if there was an outbreak in your town, you're saying goodbye to a third of the people in your family. Like, I can't even imagine how horrible that is. Um, and so smallpox is really interesting to me because it's not something we have to worry about now. Mm -hmm. And it was such a big deal. Um, and we know that smallpox um, caused fevers and rashes and then the, uh, the pustules, the, the trademark of smallpox, what it get, where it gets its name. Um, and so in my book, I included four treatments for it. Uh, one for the pustules themselves, one for the scabs that you get after your pustules fall off. Exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you got a fever and had, you know, you get trouble sleeping when you have a fever often. So I included a fever treatment plus a sleeping aid. Um, 
but the, the pustules treatment was really my favorite because in my book, I actually recreated pustules on my arms so I could be putting treatment on them. So I got to, you know, uh, I'm very glad I didn't have real pustules to put it on. Um, but, uh, you know, it was really fun to use this treatment. Um, it, you know, it was made with sulfur and oil of bay and vinegar in this, this plaster. And so it uh, really smells horrible like rotten eggs. Um, so that must mean it works really well. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it just was very interesting to, to treat this disease that we don't have anymore and in such a visual, awesome way. So, yeah, smallpox are cool. <laughs> smallpox are cool. We should <laughs> so, cool. <laughs> so, yeah. That, that makes me wonder, um, I mean, people understood contagion. There wasn't like germ theory, obviously, but like people with the bad air, like, can you tell me a little bit about what people understood about? Contagion? Right. Well, and, and that's, you know, that's where the uh, idea of the plague doctor masks with the, right. the it was filled with herbs was to filter that bad air. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they, they had the, they had the knowledge to know that, you know, there were things in the air that would cause illness. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they didn't know it was germs, um, but you knew that if you were around someone who was sick, you could get it. And so, you know, they they had that idea of of things being contagious, and um, they just didn't have as much knowledge as we do. Have you ever read? There's a book I read about ten years ago about the last outbreak of the plague in England. It was in like the 1650s or something, but there was this. Um, there was this village that sealed themselves off for two years while the plague was oh. oh, it's a really interesting book. And it's like the diaries of these people because they got it in their town and they didn't want to spread it. And so they sealed themselves off. And every week people would come and deliver food in a like in a big pit that they made and deliver, you know, clothing and all this stuff that they needed and raise a flag when it's, when it was delivered. And then like people from the town would come down and get it and they would exchange letters and that kind of stuff like that. But um, they did it until the last person either died or, you know, was better. And they, they were got better. Right. Yeah. And it was a really, that's really interesting. Yeah. It was a really interesting. Book. Huh. Yeah. I'll, uh, yeah. I mean, it's later, it's a later time period, 1680s or right. Like that. Yeah, I just it made me think because like they knew that there was contagion, but how did it spread? Kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and they you know they they knew a lot of it was in the air, and and you you see you know things where you know they would you know burn bedding and you know that contagion as well. You know you knew that some of them were physical contact. You know, and so, you know, you would get rid of their bedding, you would get rid of the things that they touched uh, to try and keep, you know, their clothing, you know, burn their clothing, burn everything to try and keep that from spreading. So, you know, they had some knowledge of it. They just didn't know it was bacteria or viruses yeah. or parasites. Sure. Cool. Well, you, you've given, you've